Hello everyone, this is Rabbi Michael Hatton and I would like to welcome you back to TanakhStudy.com Today we will continue with the sections at the very end of Sefer Bimidbar Chapter 34 verses 1 through 29 is today's reading It can be divided into two smaller units The first, verses 1 through 15 are the borders of the promised land. And the second, verses 16 through 29, the designation of the tribal elders by name, who will be responsible for allocating and distributing the land when the tribes of Israel enter it. Today's section contains a fair amount of technical language, surveying terms that are not used elsewhere in the Torah, Terms such as givul or katse, a givul is a border and a katse is an edge. Verbs which describe the border line as it winds its way through the landscape, vinasav, veavar, viatsa, and viarad. Vinasav implies that the border line somehow expands or makes a turn. The avar and viatsa. It passes or it goes out via Rad, it descends southwards. We come across the word totsaot quite a few times, which means the extent of the border. And the curious verb titaulachem, which Rashi relates to the term ta or the noun ta, tav alif. Tav alif means a side chamber, and Rashi understands the verb to mean to turn to make a turn or to extend. Others derive the verb tita'u from the root tav, where tav, the Hebrew letter, actually means X marks the spot, and as a verb would mean to mark or to clearly designate. We also come across biblical directions. The terms kedem, yam, tzafon, and negev and I'd like to make a couple of remarks with respect to directions in the Hebrew Bible. Directions north, south, east, and west come in three different varieties in the Hebrew Bible. The familiar terms that we use today, Mizrach, Ma'arav, Tzafon, and Darom, east, west, north, and south, we might term sun terms, which is to say, directions which are derived as a function of the position of the sun. So Mizrach is the east because it is the place of the shining or where the sun rises. Ma'arav is the west because that is where the sun sets or the evening begins. Tzafon is the north because in that direction, explains the Ramban in Parshat Tiruma, the sun is weakest, as it were, is hidden and Darom, the Ramban explains again, Dar-Rom, where the sun dwells at its height, and therefore the south, because the southern exposure is the brightest one. So those terms, Mizrach, Ma'arav, Tzafon, and Darom, by and large, are not used in our section. There's another way to delineate biblical directions, this time a function of the human body. And in this case, we speak of panim, achor, simol, and yamin. Panim being the east, achor being the west, 
small to the left and yamin to the right. Panim is the east because if, my, if the sun is my point of reference, when I face the sun, that's the direction of my face, panim. Achor means my back would be now to the west if I'm facing the sun. If I'm facing the sun, my left hand extends to the north, so small yamin means north, and yamin, my right hand would be pointing in the direction of the south, so yamin means south. So the other way to delineate directions in the Hebrew Bible, not as a function of the position of the sun, but as a function of the position of the human body when it faces east, which is the point of reference. And again, by and large, these are not the terms that are used in our section. The terms that are used in our section are, might, might be termed land-related. And in this connection, we speak of Kedem, Yam, Tzafon, and Negev. Kedem meaning east, Yam, west, Tzafon, north, Negev, south. Kedem east, because that's where the sun rises, the earliest part of the day. Kedem, Kodem in modern Hebrew, means first or former. Yam, to the west, because in the land of Israel, the west is the direction of the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and we'll come back to that a little bit later. Tzafon to the north, Negev meaning south, because Negev is the dry land that is the southern part of the land of Israel. So in our particular context, these are the terms that will be used most frequently. Kedem east, Yam west, Tzafon north, and Negev south. Considering the fact that the Rishonim by and large had no first-hand knowledge of the geography of the land of Israel, it is amazing, especially Rashi, that Rashi is able to reconstruct the geography of the land of Israel based solely on the verses in the Torah and in the Tanakh. Rashi lived in northern France. He never arrived in the land of Israel. He didn't have first-hand knowledge. He may have had second-hand knowledge from people that did make, make the trek, but it was unusual for people, of course, Jews, to be traveling to the land of Israel at this time. And like the other Rishonim, they owe a tremendous debt to Rashi and to the careful work that Rashi did in attempting to reconstruct the borders of the land of Israel based on our verses today. The only one of the Rishonim, the classical Rishonim, that actually made it to the land of Israel was the Ramban, Nachmanides, who did arrive at the end of his life. But curiously, Nachmanides offers no geographical comments based on this in this week's Parsha. I'll just mention the comment of the Rashbam, which highlights Rashi's role in assisting us in this particular section. The Rashbam says the following concerning the land and its borders. I'm in chapter 34, verse number two. Rabbeinu Zikeni, our master, my grandfather, Rashbam's grandfather is Rashi, of course. Perash Vitsier Tichumin. He was the one who explained and who drew out the borders of the land. And I don't really have much to add, says the Rashbam, and therefore I will keep my comments brief. So here the Rashbam highlights the fact that Rashi really plays a central role in explicating 
the borders of the land of Israel, as I said, based solely on the various references that he finds in the Hebrew Bible and reassembling that puzzle into some sort of a coherent idea as to what the borders look like. Rashi's exhaustive analysis, of course, is supplemented by our modern knowledge today and how much easier it is for us to reconstruct the biblical borders simply as a fact of being present in the land and understanding what the references are and the locations. Some of them have maintained their name to the present day, others have not. But what we take for granted today, of course, was highly terra, highly terra incognita a thousand years ago. Basically, the biblical borders are going to be delineated in today's section, beginning with the southeastern corner, continuing westwards, then moving northwards, and concluding with the eastern border. It's basically a movement in a clockwise direction, as I said, beginning with the southeast corner and moving clockwise, so therefore west, north, east, and back to our starting point. The starting point for the delineation of the borders is, of course, where the people began their journey in the 40th year, the location known as Kadesh Midbar Tzin, Kadesh located in the wilderness of Tzin, which is a, uh, a, 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 bore, a, a location that sits on the very edge of the territory of Edom. Ibn Ezra, who's always interested in linkages, between the sections. He understands that the connection between today's section delineating the border borders of the land and the last section which spoke about the entry into the land or the conquest of the land, Ibn Ezra explains, od the Torah now will spell out the borders of their territory what is their territory? Shehem chayavim lehorish misham yoshef haaretz, i.e. the territory that they must drive out the inhabitants from in order to possess it. So the last section was the warning to the people to drive out the inhabitants or else fail to possess the land. And now Ibn Ezra says that is naturally followed up by a discussion of the borders of the land so that the people know exactly the territory that must be possessed by driving out the inhabitants. Rashi, in a slightly more inclusive understanding of the idea, says very simply, why is it important to know the, bo the borders of the biblical land? For a very simple reason, many mitzvot, many of the commandments of the Torah are land-based, they only apply to the land of Israel. They do not apply outside the land of Israel. And therefore, says Rashi, the Torah found it necessary to write down the borders of the land very, very specifically, in order to indicate to you, these are the borders that determine where these particular mitzvot, what the rabbis would later refer to as mitzvot hatiluyot ba'aretz, the mitzvot that depend on the land where those mitzvot are to be practiced. So the general taxonomy is mitzvah hatiluya ba'aretz means a mitzvah which is land dependent, which stands in contrast to a mitzvah she'enat tiluya ba'aretz, a mitzvah which is not land dependent. Shabbat is not land dependent. Putting on tefillin is not land dependent. 
On the other hand, the Shemitah, the Ovel, much of the agricultural laws are land dependent. They only apply to the land of Israel. And therefore, says Rashi, it's critical for us to know the borders of that land such that we know where these mitzvot are noheg, where these mitzvot are to be practiced. We begin with chapter 34, verse 1, Vayidaber Adonai el Moshe leimor, verse 2, Tzav et b'nei Yisrael va'amarta alehem ki atem ba'im el ha'aretz k'na'an. Zot ha'aretz asher tipolachem b'nachala, eretz k'na'an ligvuloteha. Command the people of Israel and say to them that you are, you are entering the land of k'na'an. This is the land which will fall to you as your possession, the land of k'na'an, according to its boundaries. The Sforno remarks, the land which will fall to you, the, the verb used to describe possession of the land here means to fall, and Sforno says that is a term which is used particularly in the context of casting lots. Remember the story of Haman and Megillat Esther? The text there indicated, he peel pur hu hagoral, he threw down the lot, that was in fact the goral. So to throw down means that I have something akin to dice, I suppose. I throw them down, I see where the lottery falls. Even though we indicated earlier this was not exactly technically how it was done insofar as the borders of the land are concerned, but nevertheless the Sforno says that's the term that the Torah uses to indicate something which is going to be decided by lot. The land of, is called, of course, the land of Canaan, and we know that the Canaani is one of the six or seven tribes which is consistently mentioned as inhabiting the land. Presumably, it's called Eretz Canaan because the Canaani is the principal tribe. Uh, at the same time, Canaani may be a vocational term. Elsewhere in the Tanakh, a Canaani means a merchant. The most famous example being in. Eshet Chayel, which we recite on Lil Shabbat in many communities in the Jewish home. Eshet Chayel is a, a, a chapter drawn from Proverbs at the very end of the book, chapter 31. And one of the verses in Eshet Chayel says the following, Sadin natna laknaani. She prepared a piece of textile, a cover, a blanket, a sheet, and she sold it, and she gave a belt to the Kna'ani. Now, of course, we know biblical poetry, as we pointed out in Parshat Balak, fall, follows a parallelism model. So there is a parallel to be drawn between the first part of the verse and the second. She prepared a sheet and she sold it, a belt she gave to the Canaanite. So selling and giving a belt to the Canaanite are taken as parallels, which is to say that in this connection, a Kna'ani is a merchant, i.e. one who is going to sell that belt for her. The spies, you may remember, reported back in chapter 13 that Amalek dwelt in the south, the Chiti, the Yivusi, and the Emori dwelt in the hill country, and the Canaanite dwelt on the sea coast and next to the Jordan River. The implication from this, of course, is that the Canaani is a seafaring mercantile people. And in fact, 
the Greeks would later refer to Eretz Canaan, especially the more northern part of it, as Phoenicia. Phoenicia literally comes from a Greek word, Phoeniki, which means purple, purple country, and it refers to the special dye for which the land was famous and which was traded extensively by the Kna'ani. That particular dye is the purple or the biblical argaman and techelet. They're both derived from a Mediterranean mollusk called the Murex trunculus. And Eretz Kna'an really is known as the land of Kna'an because of these people, the Canaanites, that had such an important role in the Mediterranean basin as seafarers and as traders and as merchants. So sometimes the Torah simply refers to the entire area as Eretz Canaan, even though, of course, when we look at it more closely, it's broken down into tribes that inhabit particular sections. We go on to Pasuk Gimel. V'haya lachem pe'at negev mimidbar tzin al yedei edom, we begin by delineating the southern border. So the edge of the southern border will be from the wilderness of Tzin next to Edom, and your southern border will be from the edge of Yam HaMelach, the Sea of Salt, eastwards. So we begin our designation of the borders from basically what we would call the southeastern corner of the Dead Sea, Although in the Torah and in the Tanakh, it's never called the Dead Sea, Yam HaMavet, that's an Arabic term. It's always referred to as Yam HaMelach, or the Sea of Salt. Occasionally, it's called Yam HaArava, or the Sea of the Jordan Plain. The reason why it's called the Sea of Salt, obviously, is because it has a very, very high salt content. Compared to the Mediterranean, it has about 10 times as much salt, 35% of Yam HaMelach is salt, the Mediterranean is 3.8%, the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans in contrast are about 3.5%. So Yam HaMelach, the Sea of Salt, Yam HaArava sometimes, the Sea of the Plain, never Yam HaMavet, at least not in Hebrew. So our border begins the southeast edge, basically of the Dead Sea, and now continues Westwards, Pasuk Dalad, verse number four. Venasav lachem hagvul minegev, le maale akrabim vaavar tsina, vahayutotseotav minegev, le kadesh barnea, viatsa hatsar adar, vaavar atzmona. Basically, what the Torah now traces is that border as it makes its way from east to west, from the southeastern side of the Dead Sea, now moving westwards. The border will go out for you from the south to Ma'alei Akrabim and will pass to Tsina, and its extent will be south of Kadesh Barnea, which means that Kadesh Barnea will be included within the border. Adar, and it will go out Chatzar Adar and continue to Atzmon, Pasukhe. Venasav Hagvul Me Atzmon Nachla Mitzrayim, Vahayu Totseotav Hayama. The border will now turn from Atzmon to the brook of Egypt, and it will go out, its extent will be, to the sea, the Yam, to the Mediterranean. Basically, what was just traced is the southern border of the country, beginning below the Dead Sea, continuing westwards, 
cutting across the Negev and perhaps part of the Sinai and ending up at the Mediterranean at a place called Nachal Mitzrayim. Nachal Mitzrayim uh, is actually the subject of a dispute among the Rishonim what Nachal Mitzrayim is. Rashi takes the view, the popular view, that it actually is a reference to the Nile, otherwise called in the Torah the Yeor, or sometimes Nahar Mitzrayim. So basically, according to Rashi, the southern border of the land will end where the Nile pours into the Mediterranean Sea, what we call today the Delta. Many other Rishonim, uh, most prominently the Rasag and Ibn Ezra understand, and most modern commentaries as well, that Nachal Mitzrayim is not the Nile at all, but what we call Wadi el-Arish. Wadi el-Arish is, um, is a stream bed that empties into the Mediterranean. It's about 50 kilometers or so west of the Gaza Strip. So it's uh, in the Sinai, or the northern part of the Sinai, and uh, not, the, uh, not the Nile at all. Whatever the case may be, this is the delineation of the southern border of the land. And now we continue with the western border, which is, of course, the easiest one. Verse number six, for the following reason. Ugvulyam v'hayalachem hayam hagadol ugvul ze yihiyalachem gvulyam. And your western border, the great sea will be the border, this will be your western border. So only one verse is devoted to the western border because it's the Mediterranean Sea. Once you get to the Mediterranean Sea, you just follow the coast and that becomes the western border. So a couple of points about uh, what's called here yam. In Hebrew, hayam hagadol is how it's designated, the great sea, because of its size, obviously, in comparison to other bodies of water in the land of Israel. It dwarfs the Kinneret, it dwarfs Yam HaMelach, therefore it is Hayam HaGadol, the Great Sea. Uh, occasionally the Torah will refer to it as Yam Pelishtim, the Sea of the Philistines, because the Philistines were a coastal people that inhabited the area. That's how it's referred to in Exodus chapter 23, Parshat Mishpatim. In Latin, it's called the Mediterranean. Literally, medi means the middle, terranean, the earth. So the middle of the earth. Uh, for the Romans, it was sort of regarded as the center of the known world. And it is, of course, landlocked. There is land which surrounds it on four sides, not including, of course, the Straits of Gibraltar, which are the uh, outlet to the ocean. But other than that, it's pretty much surrounded on four sides. The Romans sometimes called it, uh, I guess rather ambitiously, Mare Nostrum, our sea, i.e. concerning the extent of their empire. In the Torah, it's sometimes called Yam Ha'acharon. When God shows Moshe the land in Devarim chapter 34, he, ex he shows him all the way to Yam Ha'acharon. This does not mean the last sea, but it means, as we explained earlier, acharon here means that which is behind me. So when I'm facing the east, which is to say the rising sun, what's behind me is, what's to my back is the west, and therefore yam ha'acharon actually means the western sea. The rabbis explain, by the way, that the actual border does not go along the coast, but we draw the line from Nachal Mitzrayim, until the northern point at Hor Hahar, 
and that actually includes the islands that are in the Mediterranean, whatever is included in that straight line which extends from the southwestern point to the northwestern point, so it doesn't actually follow the coastal route, but actually covers that part of the sea which is included in that straight line, what the rabbis called Iyei Hayam or Nesim Shebayam, the islands that are in the sea are therefore included in the border. We now continue with the northern border, verse number seven, this will be your northern border from the great sea you will delineate or mark out to Mount Hor this is not the same Mount Hor associated with the death of Aharon that one is close to Edom this one is far far to the north and somewhere on the Mediterranean coast verse number 8 from Mount Hor, you shall trace to the entry of Hamat, and the extent of the border will be at Tzedada. Levo Hamat is as far as the spies got in their trip earlier in Sefer Bimidbar. It's identified with the modern Syrian city of, of Hama, which is quite a bit north and inland. So basically, we are now tracing the border from Hor which is on the Mediterranean Sea, moving eastwards along the northern extent. Verse number 9, The border will extend outwards to Zifron, and its extent will be at Chatzar Einan. This will be your northern boundary. Now located at the northeastern point, we will descend along the eastern boundary, which is also relatively easy to place today. Verse number 10. You shall delineate for yourselves your eastern boundary from Chatzar Einan to Shefam. Verse 11. The border will descend from Shifam to Rivla, east of Ayin, and the border will descend and will strike the slope of Yam Kineret, the Sea of Kineret, to the east. So basically we have descended from the north down to the Kineret, and here it's called Yam Kineret, or the Sea of Kineret. The Sea of Galilee is what we refer to it as today. But really, in the Torah and in the Tanakh, it's always called Kineret. And Kineret, of course, comes from the root Kinor, which is a harp. If one has a bird's eye view of that body of water, which is possible from certain peaks in the Galil, it in fact does have the shape of a harp or a lyre. And that's why it's called the Kineret. Verse number 12, The border will descend to the Yarden, to the Jordan River, and its extent will be down to the Sea of Salt, Yam HaMelach, this will be the land according to its borders roundabout. So we just basically follow the eastern extent of the land, north of the Kinneret, down to the Kinneret, from the Kinneret, following the Jordan River, from the Jordan River, following to the Sea of Salt, to Yam HaMelach, 
and we basically have arrived at our starting point on the southeast corner. That's where the delineation of the borders began. The Yarden, by the way, the Jordan River, is called the Yarden because it is Yored, because it does go down. The Dead Sea is the lowest point, the lowest, I should say, the lowest body of water on Earth, and it is a very steep descent from the Kinneret down to the Yarden, and for that, sorry, down to Yam HaMelech, and for that reason, the, the, the river that descends from the Kinneret to Yam HaMelech is called the Yarden, which is to say that which descends, the river which descends. So these basically are the borders. Once again, the south, extending from the Dead Sea, basically to the Mediterranean, the west, extending from the southern area, Nachal Mitzrayim, until the northern point, Har Har, along the Mediterranean, the northern border from Har Har eastwards, and then southwards from there to the Sea of the Galilee, to the Yarden, and back again to Yam HaMelech, to the Sea of Salt. Vayitzav Moshe, verse 13, Vayitzav Moshe et b'nei Yisrael emor zot ha'aretz asher titnachalu ota begoral asher tziva adunai latet letishat hamatot v'chatzi hamateg. Moshe commanded the people of Israel saying, this is the land which you shall possess by lot, which God commanded to be given to the nine and a half tribes. Verse 14, ki lakachu matei v'nei haru v'ni levet avotam, because the tribe of the Reubenites, according to their clans, and the tribe of the Gadites, according to their clans, and the half-tribe of Menashe had already taken their portion. Bear in mind, of course, that the two and a half tribes which are mentioned here, Reuven, Gad, and half Menashe had already settled east of the Yarden, and therefore they are not included as part of the official territory of the land of Canaan. Shnei hamatot v'chatzi hamateh l'kachu nachalatam me'ever le'yarden yirecho keidma mizracha. The two and a half tribes had taken possession of their land on the other side of the Jordan, next to yirecho, keidma mizracha from the east. So therefore the two and a half tribes are not included in the delineations of the land of Canaan. And this of course seems to indicate that the land of Canaan has a particular status that the Transjordan does not have, that the lands east of the Arden do not have. The land of Canaan, again, is that land associated with mitzvot ha-tiluyot ba'aretz, those commandments which can only be performed within the land of Israel. In this connection, I should just point out that the rabbis explain when we talk about the borders of the land of Israel from a halachic perspective, we have to differentiate between two separate eras. The first era is called Kedusha Rishona, and the second era is called Kedusha Shinia. Kedusha Rishona, the first sanctification of the land, is when Yehoshua and the tribes enter it and they possess it. This particular Kedusha, which imbues the land with sanctity such that the mitzvot associated with the land have to be performed within those areas, that particular land or that particular area has sanctity as long as the people of Israel are not exiled from the land. When they are exiled by the Babylonians and the first temple is destroyed, so that sanctity of the land dissipates. 
it is restored when the people return from Babel and rebuild the second temple. That's called Kiddushah Shniyah, but the extent of the sanctity associated with Kiddushah Shniyah is much smaller than Kiddushah Rishona. Kiddushah Shniyah only applies to those areas which are successfully settled by those from return from Babylon, and that's a much smaller area of the land of Canaan than the one which is described in our section today. The reason for the distinction is the following. The rabbis say, Kiddushah Rishona is basically imposed through kibush, through conquest of the land, and therefore, when the Babylonians conquer it in turn from the people of Israel, that sanctity dissipates. However, when the people return from Babylon under the aegis of the Persian kings, they did not conquer the land. They acquired it through settlement. And since the sanctity was effectively reintroduced, not through the medium of conquest, but through actually settling the territory, that's a sanctity which actually has greater staying power. And therefore, the second sanctification by those that return from Babylon has the power to introduce a sanctity to the land which remains until the end of time, but only in those places that they successfully settled. In terms of the halachic discussion, that would mean that what we call today the land of Israel insofar as halacha is concerned, insofar as the commandments which must be observed in the land are concerned, it's actually not what we call the borders delineated in our section today, and it's not necessarily the borders of the state of Israel today. Some of those correspond to the borders in our section and some don't, but it actually is a function of those areas which were settled by the returnees from Babylon. And as I said, that's a much smaller area than the one which is described in the section today. We continue with verse 16, Moshe God spoke to Moshe saying, these are the names of the men which will, which will possess the land on your behalf, Elazar the priest and Yehoshua son of Nun. And you shall take one chieftain from each tribe in order to possess the land. These are the names of the men for the tribe of Yehuda, Kalev, son of Yehune. For the tribe of Shimon, Shimuel, the son of Amihud. For the tribe of Binyamin, Elidad ben Kislon. For the tribe of Dan, Buki ben Yogli. Livne Yosef, verse number 23. For the tribes of Yosef, for the tribe of Menasheh, a chieftain, Chaniel, the son of Ephod. And for the tribe of Ephraim, a chieftain, Kimuel, the son of Shiftan. For the tribe of Zivulun, a chieftain, Elitzafan, son of Parnach. And for the tribe of Yisachar, a chieftain, Paltiel ben Azan. For the tribe of Asher, a chieftain, Achihud ben Shilomi, Ulmatev ne Naftali Nasi, Pedael ben Amihud. For the tribe of Naftali, a chieftain, Pedael, the son of Amihud. Verse number 29. Ela Asher Tziva Adunai, Lenachel et Bnei Yisrael Be'eretz Kena'an. These are those which God commanded to cause the people of Israel to possess the land in Kena'an. 
So of course, this list, the language of the list, actually recalls another more infamous list in Sefer Bimidbar, and that's the list of the spies. In chapter 13, in fact, Yehoshua and Kalev, who were mentioned in the earlier list of the spies for the tribe of Ephraim and Yehuda, respectively, here reappear for those tribes. Um, but of course, the difference is that that was a story of failure and setback, and this is poised to be a story of triumph and success. But the language of the Torah is deliberate. It's intended to reinforce the link and basically to highlight how far we have come. So those spies are no more. The story of the spies is no more. The people of Israel have successfully overcome the failure of the spies. They are now poised to enter the land as they were at that earlier point. And once again, we have the, the, the 12 chieftains who are indicated who will be responsible for helping them possess the land. I should point out that the order of the Nisi'im, the order of the chieftains in this particular section does not go according to uh, the matriarch, which is to say the sons of Leah versus the sons of Rachel. It doesn't go according to the arrangement of the tribes around the Mishkan as it did at the beginning of the book. This time it goes according to what will ultimately turn out to be the biblical borders of the tribes as we make our way from south to north. So the four blocks are basically Yehuda, Shimon, Binyamin, and Dan, which are all associated with the southern area of the land, Yehuda being the largest, Shimon having a small part of the cities of Yehuda, Binyamin just to the north of Yehuda, and Dan to the west along the coast. Then we have Bnei Yosef, north of this block, consisting of Menashe and Ephraim, and then the northern tribes, Zivulun, Yisachar, Asher, and Naphtali. Another way to think about it is, just as when we describe the biblical borders, we made our way from the south, east, to the southwest, to the northwest, to the northeast, basically that's the same kind of arrangement that we are now following, except we are doing it through the names of the tribal chieftains. So we begin with Yehuda, and we move westwards, and then we move northwards, and basically we cover everything in between. So another way to think about it is, whenever the tribes are delineated in Torah and in the Tanakh in a particular order, it is not arbitrary. There's a reason why they are delineated in that fashion, and this particular order in this particular section intimates the territories that these tribes will ultimately claim as their own when they enter the land and possess it. I should just point out that in order to fully understand today's section, it is useful to have a handle on Sefer Yehoshua, chapter 15 through chapter 19, which is a delineation of the borders, but again, through the individual tribes and their individual territory. Um, and although our section corresponds, the one in Sefer Yehoshua is more detailed, um, and once again, it is according to tribe, but with a very, very similar kind of um, very, very similar kind of delineation.